The following message was given by Dr. Ian Jagelman during his 40 years of ministry as a church leader in Australia. It's our sincere desire that this timeless message will equip you as a leader and a servant in your family, business, and community. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org. Enjoy the following message. Paul's understanding is that the centrality of the Christian life is our relationship with Christ. That's at the heart of the plan and purpose of God, that we, through our relationship with Christ, receive everything that God has got for us. That's, that's his understanding. And, uh, you know, in Colo- the end of Colossians chapter 1, he says, Therefore we preach him and teach him and that everyone might be mature and experience the fullness of a relationship with Christ. And I say this because, you know, we can get to know the word of God better without getting to know Christ better. Can I hear an amen to that? And this is a profound, a f- profound thing. Is and in Colossians two, Paul warns. Does he just sees it? What's happening? They'd been taught Christ. They'd met Christ. They were growing in Christ. They were rooted in Christ. And then he sees all these spiritual substitutes coming up. Now I've got a sermon I preach, which some of you will have heard on this, and the four spiritual counterfeits of Colossians chapter two. Number one, f- philosophy. Number two, uh, ritualism. Number three, mysticism. And number four, legalism. And Paul has encountered all four of those. And I, that's not the subject of tonight. But he, he, and he, he just, in Colossians 2, he exhorts them to stay in Christ. Now you think about, and this is, you know, about as down to earth as I can get it, you think about what the Christian life is, and the Christian life is not getting to know our Bibles better. The only purpose of the Bible is that we get to know him better. And we'll actually see this in this passage. And it's my conviction that what transformed and sustained Christ, uh, Paul was firstly his encounter and then his ongoing relationship with the resurrected Jesus. I say in your notes, Paul frequently speaks of being in Christ. That's the expression he used. And uh, we'll find it over and over in, in, about in Christ. Now, what in Christ means is mean being in relationship with the resurrected Jesus by means of the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's experiential. It is that we have this relationship with Christ. And so in Ephesians 3... Verse 16, he says, I I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with all power through his spirit in the inner man. There's this work of the spirit within us. And what is it? That Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, it's not, clearly, the human Jesus does not dwell in our hearts. Yeah, our belief is, in him dwells in our hearts. But what dwells in our hearts is the Spirit of Christ, which has been given to us. And that the, the purpose and Jesus teaches his disciples in, in that in the discourse of John 13, 14, 15, 16, he makes this statement. He says, 
It's expedient that I go to you, leave you. Because if I leave you, I will send you another one to be with you, who is the Holy Spirit. And he says, in the same passage, he says, I, will, I, my Father, will not leave you as orphans. We will come to you. Speaking of the work of the Spirit. And that Paul did not just have this Damascus Road experience when he heard a voice from heaven and he met Jesus, but then the Spirit of Christ dwelt in his heart, dwelt in his heart, and he had this fellowship, or the graces, you know, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He had this relationship with the Spirit of Christ where the Spirit made Christ alive to him. Now, everything I'm going to say, you know, from here on through is, is describes the fellowship we enjoy with Jesus and the experience we have with Jesus, what the nature of our encounter with Jesus. And because Paul's understanding is that the Christian life is a life lived with Jesus. And there are kind of a series of early steps we take with him and uh, which we'll share a death like his and a resurrection like his and ascension like his. And so we'll be identified with him in these things. But after these preliminary early steps, we continue to live with him. And if we uh, allow ourselves to be separated from Christ, to lose the centrality of our relationship with Christ. We are no longer living the Christian life that Paul feels is the centre of God's plan. Um, and the tragedy is, it's so easy. That's the tragedy. Because you just think of, you know, our knowledge of the Bible becomes, can become a substitute. Uh, the church can become a substitute. Our Christian brothers and sisters and become a substitute. In funny, and my ministry for him can be a substitute for my relationship with him. I can derive significance and meaning and satisfaction out of my ministry. I can enjoy church. I can love church. I can have really enjoy the community of the saints. You know, I can enjoy all of these things. I can be fascinated by the Bible and the depth and the wisdom that's all in it. And I can have all of that. But if, if the effect of that is that I'm separated from Christ, then Christ is no longer the central part of my relationship with God. All these other things are. As I say in Colossians 2, he warns us about them, but in Ephesians we're going to find just how central this is. And so what we'll look at is who and what is the Jesus Paul preaches. You know? And our starting reference point will be chapter Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And um, but that's at the heart of it. Um, so it's a good point to just pause for a little bit. For just in, is Christ in you directly equivalent to then being in Christ because it's talking relationship? Christ in you, the hope of glory, is that the same as you living in Christ? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Okay. And then. The Spirit of Christ, is that really another way of talking about mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. okay. So, personal relationship with Jesus is enabled by the Holy Spirit, or in fact, um, the Holy Spirit, you're in relationship with the 
And Paul would say, but to be in relationship with the Holy Spirit is to be in relationship with Christ. <coughs> he says they're not two, they're one. It's the Spirit of Christ. So there's no need to separate. Yeah, and that's this is coming back to John's teaching. He says, I and my Father will come to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit makes us aware of Jesus because, you know, Jesus, and this is difficult, but Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father in his humanity, not in his divinity. You know. In his divinity, he is God himself, but in his humanity, he sits there at the right hand of the Father. But, but God amongst us is now through the work of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't just come to reveal himself. He comes to make Jesus alive to us. And in fact, he comes to make the Father alive to us. Uh, not that you can split them up, but there is a sense of... And so when, I'm, when I sense Jesus' presence, it's because of the presence of the Holy Spirit with me. So do you... Um, so you're literally inviting Jesus... Well, so if you have a look at a good passage to have a look at this, Romans 8. Paul says... Verse 9, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, Romans 8, 9, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. So you've got... The Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Him who raised Him from the dead, which is the Father. Right? So here in these two verses, the same, all three titles are used of the Spirit. And all of them are in us. And, and if we are His. So the Spirit of Christ is in us, the Spirit of Him who raised Him from the dead is in us, and the Spirit of God is in us. Meaning, it's obviously the Spirit. But... He uses each phrase to, to imply that a spirit who makes Christ known to us, makes the Father known to us, makes the, the, the Spirit. But Paul would never and does not kind of assume that we will have a relationship with the Spirit of a personal nature as distinct from our relationship with Christ, that the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make Christ personal to us. So this, the, the purpose of the Spirit is that we have a fellowship with him and in fellowshipping in him we, have felt, we are experiencing the resurrected Christ. There's no, Paul doesn't have a relationship with the Spirit over here and a relationship with Jesus here. His whole language is being in Christ, you know, having this relationship with the resurrected Christ by the Spirit of Christ. But it's real. You see, this is the thing is, this is not a faith thing. You can have a belief of Christ in you. I believe in Jesus. So in you is this belief. That's not what Paul's talking about. 
He believes that the preaching of the gospel of Christ leads people into a relationship with the resurrected Jesus. And it's out of that relationship that all the things which God wants to give us come. They don't come out from the Bible. They don't come from the church, you know. They come out of that. Blessed, and he says in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the Lord and Lord, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in this relationship with Christ. All these blessings come out of our relationship with him. And, uh, and Paul basically says that you separate yourself from him and you separate yourself from the blessing of God. Um, You can have a belief in God, but you can have certainly have a belief in God, but the relationship comes out of your relationship with Christ. And that's, in that sense, Jesus says, "I am the way to the Father." You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's it's there, but it's the the thing. The danger is, however, to see that this is some kind of theological issue. This is just getting our theology right. I'm not concerned with the theology this day. I'm talking about the Christian life. The Christian life is us living out our relationship in relationship with Christ. And, and, uh, and what we're going to look at is at each point, Paul will confront us with what it means to have a relationship with Christ. And, and if we've gone, because if Christ died, we have to die. Christ has been raised, we have to be raised. Christ has been ascended, we have to ascend. You know, that's what it means. It means to walk in, we have a spiritual journey parallel to his, and he is with us at each point along with us. It's not, it's, this is, and it's not even in a mystical sense or a spiritual sense, it's not a metaphor. He did it, therefore, his, what happened to him is a metaphor of what must happen to me. He will be there with us. You'll find that each point where we do this, there's an, there's an encounter with Christ at that moment. He's actually there with us. Um, but we'll, we'll kind of get into that. Well, perhaps it'll help us if we start at the first. Our salvation, you know, I've said, number one, our salvation is secured by his death. And uh, Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood through the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Right. We have redemption through his blood. Chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So our being brought into relationship with God is through the, the, the cross and the blood of Christ shed on the cross. That's what he did for us. Christ did for us. His blood was shed for us. But for Paul, it doesn't stop there. He says, okay, that's what he did for you. Now, what are you going to do for him? And the answer is, you also must die. And so we can look at a couple of the passages. In Romans 6... Verse 3, don't you know that every one of us were baptised into Christ? 
were baptised into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might have new life. So we're at baptism, we were baptised into his death. In Galatians 2, And verse 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul's understanding. Paul's understanding is that the beginning of my relationship with Christ begins at baptism when I share a death like him. He died and if I'm going to have a relationship with him, I must die. And that, 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 that part of me which dies is the life I used to live before I came to know him. And, and therefore Paul will say, you claim to know Christ? Well, have you died? If you're in Christ, you must have died then. He died, you must have died. You can't have a relationship with him but that you've died with him. You know, this is this, this issue. It's not enough believing in him. It's more than that. You've got to die with him if you're going to have a relationship. It's the entry point into a relationship with Jesus. And, uh, and Paul says it happens at baptism. And you hear it. You hear our teaching in church. You hear the pastors saying, baptism is not something, would you like to be baptised? I hate that expression. It's not a question, would you like to be baptised? question of, have you died with Christ? That's the question. Have you been buried with him in baptism? And people say, oh, I want a relationship with Jesus. I don't need to be baptised. So I'm sorry. Relationship with him, as far as Paul's concerned, begins with relating to him at his death through baptism. In fact, Paul knows that you've got no chance of living with him unless you've died with him. Because how can you live the life of Christ with him, a new life in Christ, unless you died to the old life? So for Paul, uh, his whole understanding of the centrality of Christ, beginning at the cross, which is the beginning point, for us, it's not just what happened to Jesus, it's what happened to us. You know? and, and you can look back, every one of us ought to be able to look back at this point in our spiritual journey where we died with Christ. And Paul can say, I, I have been crucified with Christ. And the, and the life I now live, you know, I live through him. It's this, I died. That's my identification with Christ begins at the very beginning. It's just kind of baptism. Now, we might uh, do the next one, then we can have a discussion about it, because it just it kind of flows on. Because for Paul, our future hope, you know, of eternal life is based on his resurrection. So in Ephesians 1, Paul says, verse 15, For this reason, since I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, Lord, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you, you might know him better. 
I pray the eyes of your heart may enlighten in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, his incomparable great power for us who believe, that power like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Yeah. And he prays that we would have a, an insight into, that we, every one of us would understand what our future is. And our future is directly linked to the resurrection of Jesus. You know, he, his resurrection is the reason why we believe in a resurrection. The reason we have hope of eternal life, hope of the future, is exactly linked to the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, you know, Paul at depth explores this whole thing and he basically says, if Christ is not raised, then we of all people are the most to feel sorry for because we've lived this life believing there's another and there is no other. You know? And he says, but Christ has been raised. Now, exactly the same with the death of Christ. Although he sees the resurrection of Jesus as the reason why we believe, you know, like we believe we're saved because of the death of Christ. We believe we have hope of eternal life because of the resurrection. But he doesn't stop there. He expects that we will have a resurrection ourselves. We'll die with Christ. We'll be raised with Christ. And um, so in Ephesians 2 verse 6, he says, like the rest, we were by nature... Um, and God raised us up with Christ. We've had a resurrection. Romans 6.4, which we read before. We've had buried with him and raised with him. Again, Colossians 3.1, we've been raised together with Christ. What, what's Paul saying? He's saying that Christ died and was raised to a new life. We've died and been raised to a new life. We've begun a new life. I believe I've begun a new life. And it's a life I share with Christ. And he's part of this new life. My relationship with him is part of this new life I have. Because I have had a resurrection. And you can't have a resurrection if you don't die first. There are lots of people in church who have no resurrection life because they've never died. But we don't just die. We're raised with him. And, and it's Paul's understanding that, that there is this whole new life I begin in. 2 Corinthians 5, he calls it being part of a new creation. You know, he, he, in 1 Corinthians 15, he'll say, and Adam all died, but in Christ all are made alive. There's like a whole new life begins for us. And, but it's, it's something we're sharing with Christ. He had it, we're having it, we're sharing it together. Uh, in fact, everything about Jesus, basically, we share in terms of his journey, even the point Paul will talk about sharing in his sufferings. And he, he has this sense that the Christian life, experientially, is experiencing what Christ experienced. And then he'll unfold the kind of the outwork, very practical outworkings of it. But he doesn't believe that someone can die and be raised with Christ and be the same. It's incomprehensible to Paul that you could be the same. It could be that if you just have a kind of a mental 
kind of intellectual belief in Christ. You could believe and not be changed, but you couldn't have died with him and been raised with him and lived the same kind of life. And uh, newness of life. So again, let me pause and uh, reflect on this because it's kind of it sounds theological when you talk about you know what happens to Christ. He died for us. And he was raised and so on. But for Paul, he immediately links it experientially for what he expects will happen in our life. Well, no, I think Paul believes that the same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead raises us to life again. And the work of the spirit, this is to be born again. This is what it means to be born again. Paul, and I'll give you the... Have a, have a quick look across to Titus chapter 3. say, beginning of verse 3, one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's a wonderful picture. <laughs> but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewing or regeneration of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Now, this, for Paul, this is not a kind of a theological assent to a propositional truth. This, this is Paul's experience of this is what we, we were, this is what we used to live. But when we got saved, we are regenerated and like washed and renewed in this experiences encountered with the Spirit is such, such that we become new, we're made alive. Now he's not saying we're perfect because, and we'll kind of go on, could go on to that as part of the, his understanding. You know, this is about two weeks down the line. He doesn't believe we're perfect, but he says we're given the potential. We're born again, born anew, regenerated, and given the potential to live a new life. The question is, are we going to live out the potential? And that's a question of faith, really. It's a faith shooting. Because I can, if I deny I've really died, I'll live the old life. If I continue to believe I've begun a new life, then the Spirit of God, which is now in me, can transform me and change me into that new life. But it's this experiential issue. That's why the new birth, or being born again, or being regenerated, is a miracle. It's a power encounter with the Spirit of God in the life of everyone who's born again. It's not doing some baptismal pressure, preparation class or some confirmation class 
where I learn to write, give the right answers and because I can give all the right answers, Bishop lays hands on me and I now can take communion as if I now can re- feed back the creed, the creeds, you know, th- which means I believe, credo, I believe, you know, this is what I confess and believe. It's not this, it's this encounter. It's an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. It's this encounter with the Spirit of God and we are to be changed. So we're not the person. This is why Paul's experience, when he got up from the ground on the way to Damascus, he was a different person. Blinded and everything else. Like, do you know, he's just a few days later, he's there. Ananias comes, lays hands on him. He gets up and immediately begins to preach that Jesus is the Christ. He's a changed man. He's encountered the resurrected Jesus. And this is the kind of encounter Paul expects every one of us to be able to have. And we don't have to hear a voice from heaven. We don't have to be knocked to the ground. But, but that we really come into a personal relationship with Christ. But Paul knows that so many people who that's where they begin, they lose it. That's why this passage in Colossians 2 is probably my favourite passage of the New Testament because it's an understanding of being... People can start with Christ and then get into a kind of a philosophical, theological direction. Their doctrine is pure, but they've lost their relationship with Christ. They can get into ritual and observance of religious days and festivals, and they can they do all the right religious things, but they've lost their relationship with Christ. They can claim visions of angels and mystical experiences, but they've lost their relationship with Christ. They can reduce the whole religious thing to a, a question of do's and don'ts. Thou shalt not eat and touch or taste, he says, but it's which has the form of religion and man-made religion, but it's powerless. Yeah? And who of us, you know, who of us have not been tempted to go down that journey? I have. You know, I, I'm kind of thankful I didn't have a religious heritage. I didn't grow up in a Christian family because I can, I, for myself, I know the night. You know, and. 40 years ago now, just over 40 years ago, I know the night I I repented and invited Christ into my heart through faith and he came into my life. I know that, but I can also think of the last 40 years, all the times it would have been so easy just to leave Christ here and go into the whole religious thing, the philosophical thing, the theological thing, the mystical thing, all of that would have been so easy. going on in your little minds there? Are you just chewing on it? Platinum? You happy for me to move on? Well, see, the next thing is ascension. Now, this is an interesting one. We're back to Ephesians. The ascension of Christ. And and it's sad for various reasons that, that uh, this is where I'm really grateful for my... Uh, Anglican heritage, because Ascension Day was an important one of the days of, you know, of the church calendar. You don't hear too much on the Ascension of Jesus in Pentecost. You know, kind of after the day of Pentecost, it kind of skips. It's often our preaching skips between the cross and the day of Pentecost and forgets there was this major event in between called the Ascension of Jesus. And uh, in Ephesians 2, uh, 1 verse 20, start there. 
It says of him that he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And in chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to have to take this one a little bit carefully. We know that that according to Psalm 110, that God had said that there was someone whom he would make David's Lord, although David was the king, one of his descendants. Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this prophecy in Psalm 110 had been a mystery which the rabbis had discussed and no one had been able to understand. Who other than Yahweh could be David's Lord? Because there's the king and there's God. Who else? Who can this third person be? And, it, and even in the Gospels, when Jesus in this overturned the tables in the temple and they said, who are you? You know, What right do you have this? And he asked them a question. He says, first answer this question, of whom did David said when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You know, there's this figure, mysterious figure in biblical prophecy of Psalm 110. Now, it's not achieved by the, the death of Christ. It's not accomplished by the resurrection of Christ. It's only the ascension of Christ, which makes this great prophecy, which is actually the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. Isaiah 53 is only there once. Think of all the possible verses of the Old Testament which could be quoted, and Psalm 110 gets it. Why? Because Psalm 110 is ultimately the fulfilment of who Christ is. Crucified, raised, seated at the right hand of the Father. And uh, I don't know, one, one of these days I might do a series, we might do a series on the book of Hebrews, which is a sermon based on Psalm 110 uh, in, in wonderful ways. Would you like that? Would you like that? We might, we might, next year, let's, we'll do a series on, on the book of Hebrews. It's my favourite book. And uh, I've got many favourites, but it's all right. <laughs> now, now, this is the issue. It would be okay for us if we said, okay, Jesus is there. Now, what's he doing there? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 to 28. So you might write it down. I'll, and I'll, 25 to 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 28. Says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he must rule and reign until all things are made subject to him. And the last thing which will be subject to him is death itself. And when death is subject to him, then he'll take the kingdom and he'll give it to the Father, and he himself will also be subject to the Father. So what's he doing? He's ruling and reigning until all things become subject to him. That's what he's doing. That's what Psalm 110 one says. 
The Lord said, My Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that's what he's doing. It's the place where his kingdom is being ruled from. So Jesus is the king and he's there ruling and reigning. But according to Hebrews 2, which we have a quick look at, Hebrews 2. Verse 5, it says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we're speaking. But there's a place someone has testified. And this is Psalm 8. It's not Psalm 110. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and you put everything under his feet. Now that implies... Note that everything is already under his feet. Now that's simply speaking of an authority which has been given. It's not reality, it's authority. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him, yet at the present we do not yet see everything subject to him. He's been given the authority, but the reality is not... Everything is yet subjected, submitting to his authority. But we see Jesus, who has made it for a little while lower than the angels, made a little while than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste for everyone. Now, I want to... We need to talk about this because this has been the source, unfortunately, of confusion and some pretty unhelpful teaching. And uh, this happens to work, we're in good shape. There's Psalm 8 and there's Psalm 110. And Psalm 8, which is talking about the Son of Man, speaks about him being given all authority. All things are made subject to him. He's given all authority. Jesus, at the end of Matthew 28, says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So he's been given all authority. But Psalm 110 says that he must rule until all things, until all things submit to that authority. to Hebrews 2 that's not yet we don't yet see that in fact according to 1 Corinthians 15 he must continue to rule and reign exercise that authority until all things so there's this difference between the authority he possesses and the fact that it's not yet there as far as Jesus is concerned the confusion of teaching is that they say teachers have said well all things are subject to him I'm united with him therefore all things are subject to me 
and if all things are subject to me, then anything I say must happen. Because the Bible says all things are subject to him. I'm, you know, with him. I'm raised, ascended together with him. Therefore, all things are subject to me. And sickness go out. This go out. This, this, this. And there's this confusion between being given authority and the reality that all things are subject to him. And they're not. We don't yet see all things subject to him. What we're living in this dimension at the moment, between the time when Jesus has been given all authority and he's in this process of bringing all things subject to him. Now, for me, that would be okay. Except if we go back to Hebrews 2 and verse 6, where he says, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. In other words, I've not just died with him, I've not just been raised with him, but I've also been seated with him. Now, what, is, what does Paul mean by this? Well, I think this is why it's helpful to go through step point one, point, point A, point B, point C. I haven't literally died. You know, I've identified with his death and baptism. I've said I've died to the old life. I haven't literally been raised. I have had a spiritual resurrection. Right? I haven't literally been seated with him at the right hand of the Father. Not in a literal sense, not a literal reality. But in a sense, I am now seeking to bring all things subject to me. In the same way, Christ is seeking to bring all things subject to him. And well might we ask, what is it that we are seeking to bring subject to ourselves? And the answer is our sinful nature. In other words, the end... Not only are all things subject to Christ, but all things are subject to me. But that uh, Paul's point of, of, I think, taking us beyond the resurrection into the ascension place is to remind us the position from which we are to approach our lives. Not approach the world, not approach spiritual authority, but to approach our own lives. I actually wondered because, uh, as best as I can see, uh, Paul, no, even though Colossians is a parallel book in so many ways, he actually deletes this phrase. I think maybe, I don't know whether he's concerned with confusion as to what, why it may be taken and some kind of triumphalism, you know, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places, you know, kind of a spiritual triumphalism or whatever. But he doesn't, he never again uses this phrase, nowhere else in any of his letters. Does he actually place us seated beside Christ? But we are in a sense of identification that we might, the things in our life might be subject. And I believe it's true in our lives. We either see ourselves subject to our circumstances or we see our circumstances subject. You know, we view them from either looking down or looking up. And there is, there is this faith position, which is not a position of triumphalism because it's an issue of, of warfare where our, you know, 
this, this nature which we have, this life we've lived, we're battling with it and we're seeking to bring it under authority in the same way Christ is seeking to bring all things in subjection to himself. I think it's, it's a good, it's a, it is a good allegory or a good metaphor for the life which we have with our lives. We're above it on the one hand, but it's not submitted to us. But isn't there a concept of authority in the spiritual realm that we have authority over demons? Yeah, but that's not because we're seated with him in heavenly places. It's because of the power of the name of Jesus. And uh, that's actually the, the next first point over the next page. But there, if you if you look at you know, if you look at the, the, the book of Acts as a case study as to when they begin, begin to heal the sick and cast out demons, it's all done by the name of Jesus, the authority which is in the name. It's not what's in me or who I am, it's who he is, as represented by the name that he's been given, which is why we have authority. And if we know him, we have a right to use that name. But if we don't know him, yeah, is this the count, remember the story of the exorcism and attempted exorcism in was it Luke six uh, Acts sixteen or seventeen? You get the demon saying, "Well, Paul, I know, and Jesus, I know, but who are you?" Because yeah, they'd sought to invoke the name of Jesus and they had no right to use that name. Uh, it would seem to me that that's the basis upon which both healing and deliverance were happening. It was not a, an authority I possess, but a right to use his name, which is the... So if you want to speak of authority, it's an authority to use his name. It's not an authority I possess in itself. Right, any... Uh, Jonathan's keeping us rocking along here with a few questions, but you're pretty quiet here tonight. We've seen in, in chapter 1, over the page, that uh, concerning him for above all authority, rule and authority, God placed him under his feet. Now, in, in Ephesians 4 and verse 13... Verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, turning to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Something we're going to talk about in, the, in a little bit. Now, the concept the Son of God is for Paul, it's the name which belongs to the Christ, the anointed one. In Psalm 2, which is a psalm said at the coronation of the kings of Israel, when a king of Israel was coronated and crowned as king, the high priest representing God himself speaks. Kind of, the king says something, the priest says something, the king says something, the priest says It's responsive. 
uh, in Psalm 2, you get the statement, Today thou art my son, I have begotten thee. The king is able to use the title son of God. That God had promised to have a father-son relationship with the kings of Israel. And he was the only one allowed to do it. Only the king of Israel could claim to be a son of God. Not a claim of deity, but a claim of a a special relationship which existed between the king and and God. Um, It had been prophesied in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, Nathan had prophesied to David that to one of his descendants, God would establish his kingdom forever. And and God said, I will be a father to me and he'll be a son to me. There's this this prophetic element of of the nature. Now, when Paul believes that Jesus has a right to use this title, the Son of God, we'll go across to Romans chapter 1. We'll look, at, we'll look at a few references. Romans 1. Verse 3. Regarding his son, who as to human nature was a descendant of David, but who the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. You know, this is, you know, is that Paul believed that although he's descended from David in a human sense, but God declares him to be the Son of God by his resurrection. So this is this title which he has. 2 Corinthians 1. Verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you and by me and Silas and Timothy. The Son of God. A kind of title Paul gives to Jesus. The Son of God. One last passage. I don't have it written down, but you you can make a note of it. Hebrews chapter 1. Let's, uh, let's just read from Hebrew 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and many times in various ways, but on this last day, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he'd made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Uh, this doesn't excite you. I, I feel I feel goosebumps every time I teach this. You know, it's this glorious sense that Jesus of Nazareth, in which they're about to build 
Uh, yes, they laid the foundation for a mosque, you know, next to the, t- the church celebrating his home in Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was ceased to be Jesus of Nazareth after his resurrection from the dead. You know, and his home is no longer Nazareth. It's at the right hand of the Father. And when he was raised from the dead, he was declared by God to be the Son of God. And therefore he's been given a name which is above every other name. You know, every other every other part of creation is part of the creation. But God has said to Jesus, You're my son. And uh, it's the son, you know, that's who Jesus is. It's his title. You know, it's titled uniquely given to him, an honour which is related to the Son of God. And it's like, he says, don't we have a spiritual authority? Well, we do if we have a right to use that name. You know, if I have a right to use the name, if I claim, and have, what right do I have to use the name? The answer is I have to know him. I have to know him. I have to have a relationship have a right to use that name and uh, and uh, well, we just go go back to Acts go back to Acts just to see the disciples uh, in the Acts 3 you know they, they heal a man with a weak knee weak ankles and he jumps and leaps and so on they became strong and he jumped about and so on. While, verse 11, while the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them at the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to the men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we'd made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he did decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murder be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of, of this. And by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know has been made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith which comes through him or through it has given this complete healing to him as you can see. Um, it's you know this is this sense and and it's it's interesting because we presume it's the name of Jesus, but it, they may well said I you know I exhort you in the in the name in the name of the Son of God to rise up in the name of Jesus. But it was like there's this there's this sense of this is who he is, and they believe this name has been authority you know, given authority. And uh, to us, it's why we're baptised in his name. You know, we're baptised in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In that act of, of baptism, we're actually submitting under the authority of that name. That's what, that's what we're doing. And of course, as we submit under the authority of that name, then every other name loses its authority over us. Now there's a name where God didn't have a name, couldn't be mentioned or anything, couldn't be written down. Now there's a name. Mm. And, uh, but really, the name, uh, 
Jesus the Spaniard wouldn't be any good. It's not Jesus. It's the reality of the person who were able to and were able to use his name. Who is the son of the son? Yeah. Mm. It's so the, the son. name of Jesus is, is really just the fact that we are able to uh, call upon Jesus. We use his name. Yeah. But in a sense, his greatest name is not Jesus. His greatest name is Son. Which of the angels do? Do you ever say, Thou art my Son? It's a title, see? It's a title. It's an honour bestowed on Jesus that he might be called the Son of God. That's, yeah, and we, we kind of have turned it into kind of a theological statement of his existence. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are these three persons in the Godhead. But for Jesus, it's more than a, a statement about the Trinity. It's actually a title given him, which places him, for Paul's understanding, that title, the Son of God, now places him above all authority in heaven and on earth because he's the Son of God. Everyone is subject to him. There is no... There's, now, we don't see it all. This is this issue. We don't see it realised yet, but... The reality is he has all authority. And, uh, but uh, if you ask Paul, well, you know, what's the name which he's been given? You know, the classic passage is Philippians 2. You know, we, why don't we have a quick flick across there? And uh, I'll just allow myself time to do this last one, which is fascinating in itself. You know, Philippians 2, where it speaks of the, of the humility of Jesus, verse 5 that we should have the same humility as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That's Philippians 2, 5 and 6. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But God therefore exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every other name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father now when reading this we are inclined to think that the name they submit to is Jesus and I don't think that's right for Paul I think for Paul that the name they submit to is Lord which is another way of expressing him to be the Son of God. You know, Jesus was his human name, but Lord is, is his title. Or Son of God is his title. Another, you know, another verse saying the same, this same thing is in, in the second chapter of Acts, in the very first sermon. And... Um, where both Psalm 110 and, and uh, Psalm 8 are both, I think, in here. It says, verse 36, it says, at the end of the Sermon of Peace, that all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. A paraphrase of the term Christ is the expression Son of God. The king. Which verse, I'm sorry? Uh, Acts 2.36. Uh, 
before I, I want to I want to try and pull us into just our life, our, our life with Jesus, our life, our Christian life. Paul Paul's feeling is that his feeling is that the centre of our existence, our whole world now, is Jesus. He's got a name which is above every other name. You know, he's died for our sins. We've been raised with him. We've we've ascended with him. We're able to view our life differently. And, all of this, but Jesus is then at this central place in the creation, in the world. The whole worldview now centres on Jesus and will continue to centre in Jesus until all things are made subject to him. And therefore the centre of our relationship with God has to be Jesus. Can't be anything else. He's got authority. He's got a name which is above every other name. He's there. And it's, it's this centrality of Jesus which Paul doesn't want us to move away from in any other way. Can't be the church. Can't be our ministry. Can't be the lost. You know, can't, it has to be a focal point of Jesus. Because he actually knows that if we, if we are Christ-centred, then we'll be right-centred towards other things. But if we lose the centrality of Jesus, we'll lose... We'll get out on the wrong way and other things as well. We have we have to keep centered in Him, and He uses He uses then one last expression, which I'm going to try with some simplicity to to express. He talks of the fullness of Him. Ephesians three. Verse 19, it says, He wants us to know that this love which surpasses all knowledge, that you might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then Ephesians 4, verse 13. He says. Until you reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Uh, Colossians 1.15 through 19. He, speaking of Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God, the first born over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, for him he is before all things, and him are all things hold together. He is the head of his body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him everything might have, in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Uh, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over all power and authority. Now what is this concept of fullness? As it relates to Christ... The fullness seems to express that embodied in Christ 
is all that is meant in terms of God's will, his attributes and his, and his grace. Everything we need to know about the will of God, the character of God, the grace of God is found in Christ. There's nothing about God which is lacking. Hebrews 1, 1, 1, 2 or 3 says, you know, you look at the stamp, he's the exact representation of the nature of God. You, know, you can look at God or you can look at the end of the stamp, you know, and his exact representation, he's exactly what God is like. There's nothing, there's a full, absolutely full representation of God's will, character and grace. Now this... This is this is now the the biggie. The church is meant to be the same thing. We're meant to be the same thing. That people are to, and we'll get into this later in Ephesians. But church ought to be able, the world ought to be able to look in the church and see a full presentation of the will of God the character of God, the grace of God. If we have the fullness of him, then they can look at the church and they can see Christ because the church is the body of Christ. And and the sense of the fullness is into the church is, is expected to be. People can look at him and see what the will of God is. Look in the church and see what the will of God is. Look at the church and see what the character of God is like. Look at the church. I'll go one step further. It's as if there's some kind of complementary relationship between the Father and the Son. That that when you somehow, when the, the Son came, we could see only then see what God is who was really like. And the church is to fulfil the same purpose. And, uh, you know, I dare not even touch it, but in Ephesians 3, we'll find, Paul will make this statement, and not just on earth, but the, the angels and the principalities will see the church and behold the fullness of what God is really like. Uh, It's in Ephesians 3 that uh, verse 10, it was his intent now that through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purposes which he's accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We'll we'll have a good look at it down the the next few weeks. But this this is the sobering, this is the awful thought. You know, that in Jesus there was this full and complete revelation of the love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the grace of God, the will of God. In him was it, and it was God's intention that through the church that revelation continued. And, and uh, you know, I've just come back from Europe and, and Eastern Central Europe, the homes of the Reformation and all of this, you know, and I, and I wonder, I think, where did the church go so horribly wrong? And 
and in a kind of de devotional sense, but just uh, you know, just one way. And I'm probably going to preach this. <laughs> yeah, in one way, it was the building of buildings, because Bible says that God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. And we'll get to Ephesians chapter 2, but the purpose of the church is that it be a living temple indwelt by the Spirit. And it's shifted back to the same problem Jesus had with the temple and the worship of the temple and the idolatry in the temple. And once Constantine declared the empire Christian and they were able to build edifices, you've got a temple-style worship, but then the priesthood develops and it's priestly nature because once you have a temple you've got to have a priesthood and all of all of this stuff and there's this there's this and you know I've, I've been wrestling with it but you know I think once you get a building it shapes the church it's not the church which shapes the building it's the building that shapes the church and for all the functional reasons that you could think how good it would be to have a building the reality is once you get a building everything changes you know, and it's like God does not dwell in buildings. The only purpose of it's interesting, the only purpose of the temple. If you look at this, the, if you read the prayer of dedication of Solomon of the temple, Solomon says, "Lord, we know you do not dwell in buildings made by human hands, but we we have built this as a place for your name to dwell, to give honor to your name." That was the purpose of the temple. And you can kind of see how the whole notion, now we go to church, we go as if God is there. And God isn't there. God is in Christ. God is with us in Christ. And that's why we've got to keep in our personal walks, Christ is absolutely central. Because <coughs> if we don't have it in him, we'll make something else central to our faith. That's where we got to. So we're going to start <laughs> to say we, we, we've got you know, a few more weeks in Ephesians. But you watch as we work through Ephesians. Paul will never let go of this, the centrality of Christ, because he understands that that's where that's where it's all at. So let's just pray. Father, I pray you'll help us to never lose sight that what we need is Jesus in our life. What our families and friends need is not our church. They need Jesus. And Lord, they don't need the Bible. They need Jesus. And I pray you'll use our church and use your word and use the programs. Lord, use everything that we do to bring people to the knowledge of Christ. And Lord, we pray in our own lives, by your spirit, help us to know him more and more. Help us, Lord to understand the depths and the wealth and the riches which are ours in our knowledge of him. I pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Dr. Ian Jagelman. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org.